Trust is very important and trust in judgment. And if they're going to trust you, they've got to have a relationship. Trust doesn't arise in an instant. It needs to be generated. It needs to be developed. At the end of the day, they'll turn around, they'll look at me and they'll say, thank you very much for that advice. Now, what do I do? Hi, I'm Rob Langton. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. Our next guest this afternoon is Mark Liebler AC, one of Australia's preeminent legal minds whose legal now corporate acumen and political skills have been relied upon by generations of this nation's most influential and successful businesses, entrepreneurs and prime ministers. Mark, it's an extraordinary privilege having you as a guest on our program. Let's start with Mark Liebler, the person. You've lived a remarkable life. What are the fundamentals that have motivated and guided you throughout a career that now extends over 52 years? This generation has been very fortunate. My generation, those who grew up here in Australia, where I was born, it's a beautiful country, wonderful standard of living, a great place to live, and yet you look around you and you see there is one part of the society which lives in conditions which are worse than you would find in a third world country, and that's our first Australians. So one of the things that, you know, has motivated me is, you know, seeing... um, First Australians in such difficult conditions, we need to do something about it because it's really a blot on our society. It's a blot on this wonderful country. We started off by murdering them. Then we sort of killed them with good wishes, with kindness. And then finally we sort of came to the realisation that we have to work together with them in order to improve um, their lot in life. And um, unfortunately, that's not something that our bureaucracy finds it very easy to deal with or to, to come to grips with. So that's been one of the things that has sort of motivated a lot of the work that I've been doing. The other has been, I'm obviously Jewish, well-known. Six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust some decades ago. We live very much today, as far as Jewish people are concerned, in a golden age. You've got a strong state of Israel. You've got prospering and well-functioning Jewish communities, at least throughout the Western world. So that's been another area of activity as far as I'm concerned. I've been very involved in a variety of Jewish um, community and international Jewish leadership positions. So these have been the things that have motivated me. Of course, the thing that's motivated me more than anything else is my family, my children. Ultimately, you know, as the generations go by, what do you leave behind? You leave behind your descendants. Upon reflection of all that you've achieved, what would you classify as both your proudest achievements and your most challenging experiences? I've been involved in many things over a lifetime and it's very difficult to articulate 
you know, the one thing that stands out. But I think probably in, in relation to my Jewish activities, the success we had in getting the Australian Parliament to pass a resolution calling for the rescission of the United Nations resolution, which defines Zionism as a form of racism, which I regard regarded as an outrageous uh, piece of anti-Semitism, calling for its rescission, which ultimately was adopted. Uh, th this was in 1986. In 1987, this re same resolution was called the Australian Resolution, was adopted by the United States Congress. And then ultimately, the racist resolution was rescinded by the United Nations in 1991. I, I, I felt that was terribly important and worthwhile. On the Indigenous side of my work, I also um, felt that somehow or other bringing us to the point, after all, I was co-chair of the Referendum Council, Bringing us to the point of the Uluru Statement was very important. It was the most comprehensive set of dialogues and consultations uh, that Indigenous people had ever held and it was designed by Indigenous people and it was culturally appropriate for Indigenous people. And at the end of the day, when it particularly when it came to constitutional recognition, they were looking to a voice to the parliament. Now, we know that there's been some difficulties on the political side in getting this thing through, uh, but I believe it will happen. The conditions are going to be right and it will take a little bit of time, but ultimately we'll have a constitutionally enshrined voice to the parliament. I mean, it, my view is that this is easily doable. As long as, you know, the, the politicians can get together and support this in the way that it should be supported, it'll carry without much difficulty at all at a referendum. And I'm confident that in the course of time, this will happen. The other area where I feel that, you know, something worthwhile has been achieved we're very much a multicultural society. Lots of um, Australian citizens came out here originally as refugees. They escaped from other countries. They came here after the Second World War. Many of them had been, you know, through the Holocaust, had been lost family members. They came here with a distrust for governments and for political leaders. They wanted to make a new life for themselves over here, but they were also determined to leave an egg behind in case something happened um, again. What I managed to do together with the tax office, um, I think it was seven years ago now, under the banner of what was called then Project Do It, we managed to allow people who had been caught in this sort of bind to bring back what amounted to billions of dollars back into the Australian economy to avoid prosecution, to pay a number of years tax, but to avoid penalties 
And it worked out, I think, very well, both from the point of view of the revenue and also from the point of view um, of those who had, in most, in many cases, um, had money which uh, had been hidden overseas and they were looking for a way to bring it back safely. So, I, you know, uh, achieving that, I think, was, was very worthwhile. Now, as an influential figure at the forefront of business and political affairs for such a sustained period of time, how much has Australia as a nation matured since your childhood, do you think? And how do you believe this country is perceived on a global scale nowadays? Well, we've certainly um, matured. When I was finishing school, we still had the white Australia policy. I mean, it, it, it was a policy of racial discrimination. We've come a long way since then. We've had more immigrants. We've become much more multicultural. And so in that sense, we have certainly progressed, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, I think those who suffer from more racism than any other group are our Indigenous people. Even as we speak today, the uh, Scanlon Foundation handed down its report, which demonstrated that racism was on the rise. Racism, anti-Semitism, all of these sorts of things are, I think, you know, developments in the United States of America um, have contributed somewhat towards this. And I think um, we've got to work very hard to put a lid on all forms of racism including anti-Semitism. There's been a rise in anti-Semitism as well in recent months. We've got a way to go, but we're a far better society than we were back in the early days. Throughout your life, you've met, engaged with and advised myriad captains of industry, heads of government and powerful world leaders, including Scott Morrison, Malcolm Turnbull and Benjamin Netanyahu, as there's photos of here. Take us through your experiences and relationships with some of the most impressive people that you've met. On the Australian side, certainly I've, um, um, I've had a relationship with every single Prime Minister from and including Malcolm Fraser. And it's interesting with, with um, some of these leaders, their public persona is very different to the people that they really are when you get to know them sort of private, privately and out of the limelight um, uh, of the public. I mean, so you take someone like Paul Keating, he was, in many respects, quite a humble guy, a very, very loyal to his friends and a very gentle guy, which is quite interesting, which is exactly the opposite from the impression you get if you just watch some of the um, parliamentary debates. The difficulties going back 30 years ago to the um, bottom of the harbour and all of the fallout from that. I worked quite closely with him and with the tax commissioner at the time to sort out some of the issues which would have created huge amount of difficulties for those who had disposed of companies and where the issue wasn't simply just paying the tax that had been avoided or evaded, depending on the circumstances, 
but it was releasing all the reserves in the company so that there would be a huge amount of tax payable which bore no relationship to the tax that was avoided. We found solutions to these uh, problems and he worked behind the scenes, Paul Keating, to achieve sort of sensible results. For me, it was a pleasure to work with um, um, John Howard. He was a remarkable Prime Minister. What, one of the things that I really admired and, and admire, continue to admire about John Howard is it didn't matter how much you disagreed with him, it didn't matter if you're on the other side of the fence, he always treated you with dignity and with respect. It was quite, um, it was quite interesting. And, you know, John Howard has been criticised in relation to some of his attitudes in relation to Indigenous issues, but he provided, when I was co-chair of Reconciliation Australia, he provided a big government grant to that um, um, organisation in order to enable it to continue to operate. When you look at Paul Keating and John Howard, Paul Keating introduced some remarkable tax reforms, the capital gains tax, um, the GST, fringe benefits tax, the imputation system. And John Howard, in turn, also was responsible for uh, a, a reform which, had it not been introduced, would leave us in deep trouble at the moment, and that's, of course, the GST. So each of those two prime ministers are responsible for introducing some critical reforms which are instrumental in terms of securing the welfare of our society. And then, of course, I, I was a great admirer of Julia Gillard, who I felt was treated in a way that no other Prime Minister has been had been treated. And uh, I, I found that very, very hurtful. Um, I think she will go down in history as in, in having some incredibly important achievements to um, her credit. I mean, the mere fact of the, you know, the Royal Commission into Child Abuse, this is just one of the most, in terms of its implications and consequences, is one of the most important initiatives that this country has ever undertaken, and the credit goes to her. So that's just a few of the, <laughs> the Australian Prime Ministers. I could tell you stories in relation to all of them, but as far as Israel is concerned, look, uh, I've known the current Prime Minister since I think I met him first in 1986 when he was Israel's ambassador to the United uh, Nations. He's been a remarkable Prime Minister. Um, uh, you, you could spend hours just recounting all his achievements. There's going to be an election taking place in Israel shortly. I don't know whether he'll be successful or not. There, there are many who legitimately feel, I think, that someone who's under indictment for criminal offences ought not to be leading the country as Prime Minister because it's too distracting.
So what is going to be the outcome of this? Um, I don't know. And uh, in, in Israel's electoral system, it, it's anyone's guess. I also was, you know, every time I went to Israel, I saw the late Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. I'm a great uh, admirer um, of his. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there are many who point to the Oslo Accords and say they didn't bring about peace, they brought about increased terrorism. But on the other hand, the outcome of the Oslo Accords has demonstrated that those who say, who talk about occupied territories are talking nonsense because Gaza is controlled and occupied by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority controls, you know, the lives of almost all the Palestinian residents who live in the territories there. Obviously, until they demonstrate that they're interested in peace, there isn't going to be a peace. I personally am strongly in favour of the idea of a two-state solution because I don't. I think that's the only way Israel can retain its democratic and Jewish nature. But survival is of paramount importance. And if the West Bank were to turn into another Gaza, then, you know, this would create an impossible situation. So I believe one day there will be peace, but all sides have got to be ready for that to take place. But, you know, one of the things you've got to hand Bibi Netanyahu credit for is, um, you know, the peace agreements that Israel has now entered into recently with, you know, a whole host of, of Arab countries, um, this is a real achievement and also demonstrates the fact that, you know, not all Arab countries are going to sit around waiting forever for the Palestinians to decide that, you know, they'd like to have peace. Now, in terms of family history, the Liebler family settled in Melbourne from Antwerp in 1939 and four years later in 1943, Mark Liebler was born. Take us through your most vivid childhood memories here in Australia. I was brought up in a fairly sheltered way. Our house was a traditional Jewish household, observant household. Um, I went to a Jewish day school and it was only thereafter when I went to university, when I uh, embarked upon legal practice, I gained a better understanding of society um, as a whole. So it was a you know, fairly sheltered life. I didn't experience anything at all, much that I can recollect in the way of anti-Semitism or, or racism. I had a very happy upbringing. Look, uh, one of the things that, that did have an impact on me, and it, I still have great difficulty in describing what the impact was, but I'm, because I'm not sure, but, you know, my father died very suddenly um, when I was only 14 years old, and obviously that had an impact. But that was, you know, my early life was, a, you know, it was a very... Happy life. I loved... Look, I, I hated school. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of discipline was anathema 
to me. I didn't like being told what to do or when to do it. And that's why when I got to university, I really did enjoy it. Um, I, I handled myself the way uh, that I wanted to. Um, I enjoyed the freedom and I found it was, a, you know, it was, was great. And then, of course, from Melbourne University, I went off to um, Yale. I had a scholarship there and that was, you know, at the time, look, nowadays Melbourne University Law School is up in the top eight law schools in the world. And uh, there are many universities here now, but when I went to university, Melbourne University was the only university that had a law school. And it was very different to the way that it is, uh, to what it is today. Um, the classes were, uh, there were about 150 in each class. If two or three students put up their hands, you'd be lucky. It, it was just very much a different ball game. Whereas, you know, you go to a university like Yale, it was the, what did I say, the, the creme de la creme. I mean, in the graduate school, there were only 30 students, 15 from the United States, 15 from the rest of the world, and pretty much each year they took one from Australia. And in my year, um, that was me. They had the best teachers in the world and the classes were small, about 30 odd in a class. We had classes together with the, the, uh, the undergraduates as well. But everyone was articulate, everyone participated, everyone seemed to be bright and intelligent. It was just a wonderful learning experience. And I, I, I found it taught you a lot about how to think. And what was it like living in the States? Oh boy, living in the States at that time. Now, just to remind you, I'm talking around 1968, 67, 68. It was a time of complete turmoil. Martin Luther King was assassinated whilst we were there. America was um, uh, trying to extract itself um, from the Vietnam War. I still remember on the television set Lyndon Johnson announcing that he won't run again for president. There were riots even in New Haven, um, which is, you know, it's about an hour and a bit drive from um, New York, but there were riots there. And um, I remember my wife was out in a department store and for hours was just locked in, couldn't get out during these riots. As we left New York, literally as we departed and I think we arrived in, what was it, I think it was Spain, on our way home, um, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, it, it was a fascinating. We were very conscious because of where we were of international developments. So it, it was um, it was quite an experience from a whole range of points of view. 
Now, despite a stint at law firm Arnold Block and Associates prior to Yale, in 1968 you accepted an offer to rejoin the firm following your studies. Talk to us about the impact Arnold Block had on your early career in terms of how to deal with clients, his professionalism and the leadership he provided to you. He was a remarkable lawyer, absolutely brilliant, had a, had a very, very sharp mind. Um, he taught me um, the importance of client service. You know, every time nowadays when I meet with you know, partners, when I meet with each group of, of seasonal clerks, the one thing I explain to them is there is nothing that's more important to return a client's call on the same day. And if you can't return it on the same day, get your PA to ring the client up and to say that I'm busy, I'm in court, whatever it is, and I'll return it the next day. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you may negotiate a very good contract or a merger or whatever it happens to be for your client. But unless there's a dispute about it later, no one's really going to know whether you did a great job or whether you messed it up. Since these sorts of disputes uh, overall happen pretty rarely, um, what the client will really remember about you is how attentive were you, uh, you towards him. How much did you care? And if you couldn't be bothered picking up the phone to return a phone call, doesn't matter how good your contract is, he's going to be looking for a lawyer Amazing. elsewhere. Four years later, in 1969, you were made a partner of the firm and owned a 25% stake in the business. Walk us through the evolution of ABL throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Look, when I came there, fundamentally, there was Arnold Block, there was myself, and then we had another lawyer who uh, we brought in to do the litigation. And apart from us, there were still 30 people there in the law firm. We had a whole series of conveyancing clerks who did all the property work. You wouldn't be able to have conveyancing clerks nowadays who were not legally qualified um, involved to the same extent as you could in those days. But that's how we operated. It was very, a very profitable law firm. Arnold Block did the, the bulk of it in terms of tax work, mergers and acquisitions. We had the first and most, and the best, and even today I would think most modern deed of discretionary trust that exists in the legal profession nowadays. But they were early days. Other people really didn't know too much about it. It's quite different um, nowadays. We now have, you know, large practices in terms of ACCC, in terms of um, corporate and public company work. Our property department has become far more sophisticated. Uh, our litigation has really... Litigation was then an adjunct to the practice. Now it has the reputation of being a leading part of the practice and one of the leading litigation practices in Australia. So we have grown, but our culture has remained pretty much the same. 
One of the things that we do is, and we train our lawyers to do, they need to think out of left field. They need to be creative. They need to find solutions to problems. And that's part of what we are today, and I believe why we've been as successful as we have. Reflecting on your legal career in general, what are some of the cases you worked on that you remember most fondly? Actually, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the one case that I remember with the greatest of fondness, and it's not, it's not a tax case, but returning the copyright in, that, in those iconic um, Albert Namajira paintings. I mean, one of the most well-known of our Indigenous painters, back to the family and extracting it from um, the, the party that had been sold to for a mere pittance by the Northern Territory um, government's trustee at the time. That, that to me was fantastic. And now all those paintings are available, you know, for the public to see, the public to buy um, uh, and to deal with. I thought that was of major, major significance. It's been reported that around one in four or one in five, depending which paper you read, uh, of the 200 wealthiest families in Australia are clients of ABL. I won't name them, but what do you think it is that keeps many of these wealthy families and high net worth clients coming back to ABL year after year? You mentioned client service, but what else do you think? Trust. Trust is very important and trust in judgment. If you're advising one of the large corpor listed corporations, and we do do a, a lot of their important high-level work, not the commoditised stuff, they'll basically come to you and they'll want your advice, right? And you'll give them their advice and then they'll think about that and they'll decide on the basis of that advice how to deal with a particular situation. Most of high wealth individuals, which large businesses, are totally different from that. They'll also want your advice. But you know, at the end of the day, they'll turn around, they'll look at me and they'll say, thank you very much for that advice. Now, what do I do? So what they're looking for is not only your advice, and you, you can't be in the legal business if you're not giving um, accurate advice, but they'll be looking to you for your judgment. And in order for them to take that judgment on board, they'll need to trust you. And if they're going to trust you, they've got to have a relationship. Trust doesn't arise in an instant. It needs to be generated. It needs to be developed. One of the things that we do, we get to know our clients. We almost sort of live with them in, in a sense of the term. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, I might have two clients with pretty much the same problem that they're looking at, and I'll give each of them a totally different piece of advice as to how they should handle it. Because maybe one of them is very anxious about things, like to, likes to sleep soundly at night, doesn't want to get involved in a brawl with a regulatory authority, and another one 
He would enjoy, as long as his prospects are good, yes, he'll enjoy a good brawl and, and he'll thrive on it. Right? So this is the importance. In other words, when you're dealing with the law and you're dealing with clients, you're not dealing simply with words in a statute. What you're dealing with is human beings and they're all different. And you've got to understand also how to deal with the human beings that are located in different regulatory authorities like the tax office, ASIC, the ACCC. You've got to know who to deal with, at what level to deal with them, how to get the best results for your clients. And it's a great deal more than knowing the law in, in terms of knowing the what the statutes are and understanding what the rules and regulations are. Because inherently, a lot of law, this applies particularly in the tax area, is uncertain. And if it's uncertain, it means that although there's no discretion uh, built into the relevant legislation, there will be, in practice, a great deal of discretion in terms of how that legislation is applied in practice. Aside from your roles at ABL, you've also had a number of significant appointments across the corporate sector, including as a director of Coles Meyer Limited for around 15 years, and also as a board member of Portland House Group. Reflecting on some of the roles you've held, what are the most inspiring or most difficult situations you've faced? Look, I must confess that I've developed some real issues about the capacity of a director to do anything worthwhile um, as a director of a large public corporation. Your ability to influence events is limited. There are issues in terms of regulating the flow of information from management um, to the board. Uh, and uh, I, this is something that I noticed particularly during my time at um, Colesmire. And frankly, it put me off public company appointments. On the other hand, you know, you take a non-profit company like Reconciliation of Australia, Reconciliation Australia, uh, I found that to be incredibly fulfilling. I, you know, I felt that we really managed to do some great things. For, you know, example, reconciliation action plans, which most of the major corporations and the not-so-major corporations have adopted nowadays, which have made a huge difference in terms of um, advancing reconciliation with our first Australians, that is something that, you know, as a board we were responsible for. And every single one of the board members played a role in, in making sure that, you know, initiatives like that got up. As I said, um, it, it may be a little different if you happen to be the chairman of a large public company. And, and the other thing is you end up by <laughs> getting exposed. I, I, I wouldn't be too worried about the actual liabilities, but, you know, public company directors get exposed to huge uh, 
reputational risks. Mm. Now, you only have to read the newspapers over the last couple of years to understand what I'm talking about. So I prefer to... Fo- I'm focused on getting involved in areas where I feel that I can add value, not just for the sake of sitting... I think if you look at AICD, company research, and as you said there, newspaper reports, it seems to be sort of a corporate merry-go-round of the same company directors on the same boards each year. Do you think that's to the detriment of many potentially, say, successful private people that would be great to go into the public sector that just don't want to do it? The short answer to that is yes. Absolutely. I've got absolutely no doubt about it. Throughout your career, you've negotiated countless disputes, business deals and transfers of power. In your experience, what are the fundamentals to negotiation and deal-making? And you mentioned trust earlier. What else do you think is critical? Ask for something that is reasonable in terms of the other party being reasonably able to agree with it, otherwise you're wasting your time. But the most important thing is put yourself in the other person's shoes. That is... And it's amazing the number of situations that I've seen where people don't do that and don't understand the importance of doing it. Um, I think I've, you know, managed to successfully negotiate, you know, quite a few agreements and settlements with the uh, between my clients and the tax office. But fundamentally, that that in order to do that, I need to understand what will create a win-win situation where both parties can walk out satisfied. And when you're dealing with a regulatory authority, by the way, it's not the same as dealing with a commercial organisation. With a commercial organisation, it's more finding a compromise that both can live with. Sometimes when you're dealing with a regulatory authority, the way you cast the settlement can be as important as the monetary value. So these are... And these are things which you pick up over time with experience. You're a tax law specialist. When analysing the the current system today, what are the biggest taxation issues that have implications for broader society and that need to be resolved sooner rather than later? Well, let me tell you what what stands in the way of getting to where we need to go. Two things. First of all, the Senate. You have... I mean, Paul Keating referred to the Senate as unrepresentative swill, and he was 100% correct. It'll never happen, but it's going to make... Tax reform is made very difficult by the existence of the Senate. And the other thing, which is not going to go either, are the states. The amount of buck passing involved between the Commonwealth and the states. I mean, you look in the area of health, you look at the area of education, it's impossible to figure out for the ordinary layman who's responsible for what when things go wrong because of the amount of buck passing. So there there are the issues there. What do we need to do in terms of tax reform? First of all, my part, I think we need to increase the GST. We need to provide, obviously, compensation to lower income earners, 
but it's a very difficult tax to evade or to avoid. And I think we'd have a far better structured system if we had a higher GST and a reduced um, income tax, which is important from another point of view. It is my, and by the way, I think I've raised this and fundamentally reached agreement in principle with every single treasurer of, a, of the Commonwealth for God knows how long. But, but ultimately what they say is, well, we, we can't afford the revenue loss to do it. The, you can't have a company tax at 20, now close on 25% and a maximum marginal tax rate of something like 46%. It does not make any sense because um, the, what it means is those who are doing similar things but in a different capacity are being taxed at vastly different tax rates. It's unfair, it's inequitable, it's wrong. And we're not going to have an equitable tax system until we can bring together the top marginal tax rate and the corporate tax rate. You know, it's very interesting. Um, Paul Keating did it for one year, one year only. I don't remember which year it was, but for one year, the corporate tax rate was far too high, 47%, and the maximum marginal income tax rate was 47%. Interesting. But the idea is that they both have to come down. We need a higher GST, and uh, it, I, don't think, I don't think this is going to happen for some time, but... I want to ask you about that. Do you see the appetite or the stomach amongst the current crop of politicians to try and enact any significant reform? Or do you think reform's dead? Uh, I really think to get effective tax reform nowadays, two things need to happen. I think the shape of the Senate needs to change, but somehow or other, we, you know, we need to be, we need to see more bipartisanship. We don't see enough cooperation between the political parties. Every time something comes up, it doesn't matter what the merits are, um, the other side is going to oppose. Whoever's not in government is going to be opposing. And, and we've seen this time and time again. And, you know, as long as that's what's going to happen, it's going to be very difficult to see change. I mean... The, the, the existence of the Senate is a real problem when it comes to tax reform. I, I mean, it's a major, major problem. You know, Tony Abbott, you know, just decided to proceed with tax reform, um, his idea of tax reform, but to, you know, ignore the fact that there's a Senate there. Well, we all saw what happened. My second last question is about ABL as a business. Now, rather than grow for growth's sake, ABL as a business has focused on client relationships and profitability, as you've said. What are the advantages of this and how have you managed to navigate an increasingly competitive legal landscape over recent years? How have you stayed relevant as a business? Well, there is a competitive landscape, but... Um 
our competition really is to be found amongst the, the very largest, I call them the mega sort of um, law firms. And uh, I, I think they've made some strategic errors um, you know, in recent times. Some of them have become international uh, law firms. Uh, we've actually captured, uh, you know, additional work from um, uh, internet, from, from um, offshore large law firms as a result of conflicts of interest, which, um, you know, uh, this has engendered. Um, look, we need to be of a certain size because we need to be of a size if we, we need to have expertise in, in the major areas of business law where our clients are concerned and in order to service our clients. But over and above that, um, we're quite different from our competitors. For example, one of the things that struck me is that our seasonal clerks when they come in here, I always have a session with them. Myself and our managing partner, Henry Lanza, we always sit down with them. We have a session at the beginning at the end of their clerkship. And one of the things which they, which they tell us, because they've done clerkships elsewhere, usually at the larger law firms, they said they're quite amazed by the amount of client contact that they have. We encourage our young lawyers to have as much face time with clients as is possible. Whereas you'll find in a lot of the mega law firms, they operate like, they operate like large um, public corporations. <clears throat> the partners are more like employees and they all worry about losing clients if they expose other lawyers to those clients. Our attitude is exactly the reverse. Look, we think out of left field. We are creative. That is why clients come to us. And look, find me another law firm that has acted at the same time for a prime minister and a leader of the opposition, which we have, different cases obviously, but we have. We've, we've got a, a number of clients that will come to us for their bet the farm work from amongst, you know, the top companies. My final question is, how do you see the relationship currently between Australia and Israel, and what more can be done to strengthen the relationship into the future? Well, I think the relationship is, um, is great. I mean, Australia today in the world is one of Israel's, is pretty much Israel's best friend. Australia's played a very constructive role, particularly when it was sitting on the Human Rights Council in order to um, uh, negate and speak up against the hostile anti-Israel agenda, which the Human Rights Council at the United Nations um, was advancing constantly. I think we need to increase trade between the two countries. And I notice only yesterday um, the um, Trade Minister, Dan Tehan, announced that Australia is looking to negotiating a free trade agreement with Israel, which I think is great. Um, I think particularly in the area of innovation, cyber security, there's a lot more potential. 
uh, for relationships to further develop between Australia and Israel. I'm, I'm quite optimistic about it all. Well, Mark Liebler, companion of the Order of Australia, and for good reason too at that. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Nice talking to you.